Aaron, you made me nervous when you said turn to Matthew 1. I was like, was there miscommunication? Am I in the wrong passage? There's been a few times in my life where I, I've been asked to preach, like, you know, very short notice, hours, but never seconds, minutes. So I was like, okay, but yeah. Uh, well, good morning. It, it is good to be back in the pulpit. Uh, I've had the privilege, along with you, of hearing both Pastor Paul and Pastor Aaron bring the Word of God the last two weeks. It's been a gift. I'm thankful, but I'm also glad to be back in the pulpit today and to bring this series to a close. Um, our text is Matthew 2, 1 to 12, the title of my sermon, Visiting Jesus, Revelation and Worship. Revelation and Worship. And here's the big idea, pretty simple. The proper response to God's revelation in Jesus Christ is worship. The proper response to God's revelation in Jesus Christ is what? It's worship. So the Grand Canyon, uh, snow-capped mountains where we lived in Washington, every day in the wintertime I could look outside and see the snow-capped mountains in the background. It was simply beautiful. So again, the Grand Canyon, snow-capped mountains, a bride walking down the aisle, a baby being born. If you've not been there for that, oh my goodness, it's incredible, it's beautiful. And most important, most important, one's spiritual eyes being open to the Savior, Jesus Christ. You see beauty in all those examples and you respond with awe. What is the proper response to Revelation? Awe, wonder, and worship. And I want to argue this morning that Revelation results in worship. Now, before Revelation, and here I'm talking about divine revelation, God's grace whereby through the preaching of the gospel, the Spirit works on the heart of a sinner, opening their eyes to the truth of their condition and the beauty of the gospel. Before that happens, Christ is either unknown or merely a person or concept. After Revelation... After God graciously reveals his son to sinners through the gospel, after that, he is what? He is Lord, he is Savior, and he is King. Revelation brings awe and worship. Revelation brings change of the eternal kind. 2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul writes, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Those who behold the glory of the Lord in the face of Jesus Christ and the Word of God have been transformed and are being transformed. Again, the purpose of divine revelation is what? It's worship. Now, as Christians, we know that Christ was revealed. Amen? That's why we're here. We, we gather because we believe that. This is Christ's own claim in Luke 24, 27, where he demonstrates that Moses and all the prophets bear witness to him. But questions remain. And these are the questions I want us to answer together this morning. Number one, how was Jesus revealed? Chris, you say he was revealed, but how? How was Jesus revealed? Number two, why was Jesus revealed? Number three, How did people respond to this revelation? And number four, what might we take away from the proper response to this revelation? Okay, so four questions quickly. 
How was Jesus revealed? Number two, why was Jesus revealed? Number three, how did people respond to this revelation? And number four, what might we take away from the proper response, the appropriate response to this revelation? Are we good? We're together. Let's move forward. How was Jesus revealed? Again, remember this throughout. Worship flows out of revelation. There is no worship without revelation. It's true. It proceeds. Worship is preceded by revelation. What do we see in our passage in relation to revelation? Who and what bears witness to the Savior King? Now, several things catch our attention here. Number one, nature. Nature. Verses 2 and 9 For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Verse 9, after listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. What in the world was this astronomical phenomenon? You know entire books have been written on this? Dissertations have been done on the subject. What, What was this? What were the magi following? Well, some have suggested a comet. Others, a guiding angel that appeared as a star. Some, and a lot of work has been done on this, the conjunction, the the bringing together of Jupiter and Saturn. Others have argued that it was a theophany. What's a theophany? A theophany is what we see, especially in Exodus. God appears visibly. Think of the burning bush or the pillar of fire that guided and directed Israel. So some argue that maybe this was a theophany. Or some, a newly created phenomenon meant to guide the wise men to the king. John Piper says of the star shining in the sky that God wields the universe to make his son known and worshipped. Amen? God wields the universe to make his son known and worshipped. What we learn throughout scripture, and this is consistently revealed, is that God created the cosmos... He controls the cosmos, and he reveals himself through the cosmos. Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. So God used the cosmos, his creation, to bear witness to his son. Number two, how else was Jesus revealed? Through nature, by nature, people. (laughs) Number two, verses one and two. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, In the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to do what? To worship him. So interesting, and we'll talk more about this later, but some of the first ones to bear witness to and respond appropriately to the Savior king are Gentiles. Now, why is that significant? If you know Matthew's gospel, it's written primarily with Jews in mind. And who are the first ones to bear witness to the Messiah? Non-Jews, Gentiles. So again, we have nature bearing witness. We have people, specifically who? Gentiles. We have the word, number three, verses four and six. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Verse five, they told him in Bethlehem of Judea, For so it is written by the prophet, verse 6. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, 
are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So this is a bringing together of two Old Testament passages. We have Micah 5.2 and actually verse 4 as well, and then 2 Samuel 5.2. Here we see God's faithfulness. He promised to send the Savior King, and the Savior King had come. What does that tell us about God? He is? He made a promise, and he came through on the promise. He is what? He's faithful. He's faithful. And we're going to come back shortly to these two Old Testament passages. I'll unpack them. Number four is angelic testimony. And this goes back to the immediate context in Matthew 1, 20 and 21. So, so far, how has Jesus been revealed? Number one, nature. Number two, people. Number three, the word. And now we have angelic testimony. This is Matthew 1, 20 and 21. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and ye shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Okay. Now maybe you're thinking, Chris, we get it. Christ has been revealed in many ways. Why is that significant? Why does that matter? Why spend the first five minutes of my sermon even talking about that? Jesus, the Savior King, was revealed by nature, people, the word, and angelic testimony. What does this teach us about God? Namely the fact that God has revealed himself at so many various levels. If you're not in awe right now, something's wrong. You may be dead. I'm serious. I mean, four, four things. At four levels, God reveals his son, his salvific plan. Are you kidding me? This is not in your notes, but it should be. If you have time, if you have a pen and your hand's working, please write this down. What does this teach us about God? Number one, God is relational. God is relational. He reveals himself to be known relationally by his creatures. Number two, God is loving. God is loving. Now, God's revelation is first and foremost for his glory. Amen? But it also takes into account others, namely us. His revelation is for the good of others, for our greatest good is to know him. So the fact that we can know him through his revelation, what love? And number three, God is gracious. God is not obligated to make himself known. We are such an entitled people. God doesn't owe us anything. Well, in fact, he does. He owes us wrath, punishment. God is not obligated to make himself known. The fact that he does is grace. What a gift. It wasn't like it was something written on a cave wall for us to go and find. God made himself known through his creation, through his angelic beings that he made, through people, and through his word. Here's the application point here, and then we'll go into our next point. And this is so helpful, I think. If revelation precedes worship, it comes before worship, and our goal as Christians is to make more worshipers of Jesus, disciples, then we must be about bringing God's revelation before others. Amen? So if, again, if the goal is to make worshipers, disciples of Jesus, and what comes before worship, revelation, then our goal as Christians 
must be to do what? To bring God's revelation before others. We must, and now again, where is God revealed? Where is the gospel found? In the what? The word. It's a word. We must present the word, for it is in the word where Jesus Christ and his life, death, and resurrection are revealed. If God is glorified when his image bearers worship him, then God's glory must be our primary motivation for evangelism. Amen? We want to see more and more people worshiping King Jesus. And that's not going to happen without revelation. And we've been given the word of God, so let's give it. Amen? Let's give it joyfully, boldly, and faithfully. Now, we just answered the question, how was Jesus revealed next? Why? Why was Jesus revealed? Why go to such great lengths to make himself known? Why did Jesus come? Four things here. He came to save his people. Ooh! Like, come on, man. Like, oh, he came to save his people. Again, if, if you're not excited about that, you're dead. I'm going to come check pulses later. Just make sure everybody's alive. Matthew one twenty one. she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. He came to save his people. That's why he was revealed. That's why he came. Number two, he came for the nations. Now, you better be thankful for that. You better be thankful for that. And this is confirmed by the response of who? The wise men. These were Gentiles, non-Jews. The Lord came to draw the nations to himself. His people will consist of people from all nations. That is the clear and constant testimony of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. Genesis 12, 3. Isaiah 2, Isaiah 11, Isaiah 60, Revelation 7, verse 9. Here we learn that his people consist of more than just the Jews. He came for the the nations. And this reveals the scope of Jesus' work. This is what the Old Testament points ahead to, an international rescue mission. Number three, he came to shepherd his people. He came to care for his people, provide for his people, guide his people, and as the good shepherd laid down his life for his people. Are you thankful? Now, verse 6, right? I told you we'd come back to these Old Testament passages. Now, sometimes this can be difficult. How did Matthew, inspired by the Holy Spirit, intend to make use of these Old Testament passages? It's an important question. Are you ready? Let's delve in. <laughs> verse 6 looks back to Micah 5.2 and verse 4, and then 2 Samuel 5.2. Matthew places the birth of Christ in the rich tradition of prophetic promise. Again, simply put, what God promises to do, he does, which tells us God is faithful. In you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Matthew brings together, okay, and this is common. We see this throughout. This is in Luke 4. This was a common practice amongst the, the New Testament writers. 
They would bring together multiple passages in the Old Testament, multiple passages that dealt with promise, and they would show how Jesus is the fulfillment, the yes and amen of all God's promises. Here he brings together Matthew, I'm sorry, Micah 5.2, Micah 5.4, 2 Samuel 5.2. Now, what do we learn from these passages? I'm going to be very brief here. They speak to the lineage, the birthplace, the vocation, and the character of the promised king. Lineage, birthplace, vocation, character. Lineage, birthplace, vocation, character. I'm not going to say it again. (laughs) Now, what's the answer to those questions? Son of David, born in Bethlehem, same as David, right? There's that Davidic connection. Ruler, that's his vocation. And shepherd, his character is seen in the fact that he came to shepherd, The bringing together of these Old Testament texts sets the stage for the king to come. He will come from the line of David as promised. He will be lowly and gentle, humble beginnings, born in Bethlehem. And he will be the shepherd king of promise. So Micah 5.2 looks ahead to the Davidic Messiah to come. Everyone knew that the Messiah would come from whose family, whose line? David's. It also, in Micah 5, 2, speaks of his humble beginnings. Born in Bethlehem. Now, 2 Samuel 5, 2 contains the Messiah's vocation, right? Because again, what was David's vocation? David would do what? He would rule. Now, what's common? What's common to both Micah 5, 2 and verse 4 and 2 Samuel 5, 2? I'm glad you asked. What's common to these two passages? It's the emphasis on the king's role as a what? A shepherd. As a shepherd. And this gets at his character. As the shepherd king, the promised Messiah would rescue, care for, and lead God's people. I mean, what kind of king is that? Is that an evil, vindictive, domineering king? No, he's a shepherd. And what does a shepherd do? Cares for, guides, protects, rescues his sheep. That's our king. Amen? I mean, again, Matthew is bringing together two passages that emphasize that point. As he's talking about the Messiah to come, he's our shepherd king. Now, this is cool. Are you ready? This is going to blow your mind. The background here, I would argue, is Ezekiel 34. This wonderful passage, I love Ezekiel 34, contains both indictment and promise. The Lord, in Ezekiel 34, commands Ezekiel to prophesy against the failed leadership of Israel. The leadership of Israel had neglected their duties to care for God's people. They'd done a terrible job. Good news. God himself would come as shepherd to rescue his scattered people, to bind up their wounds, and to care for them. Isn't that a great promise? I mean, the leadership has failed. They've not done their job. God's people are scattered. They're suffering. Good news. God is going to come as shepherd and rescue his people and bind up their wounds and care for them. Listen to Ezekiel 34, 11 and 12. For thus says the Lord God, behold, I, I myself, man, 
God takes the initiative. I myself will search for my sheep. I will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. But it doesn't stop there. And this is, this is all going to make sense. So again, God is coming as a shepherd to gather his sheep. Why? Failed leadership, right? They didn't do their job. But it doesn't stop there. This is so cool. This is the mind-blowing part. You're like, oh, that's, that's great. Praise God. But it gets better. Not only would God himself serve as shepherd over his people, but he would set over them a Davidic shepherd, a shepherd from the line of David, a shepherd king. Ezekiel 34, verse 23. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them, and he shall feed them and be their shepherd. Now, which is it? I'm confused. Are you confused? Which is it? Is God himself going to come and be their shepherd and care for them and rescue them, or is it going to be this Davidic king? Yes. Let me help you out here. What did I just do there? Oh, snap. Listen, this is incredible. Let, let me just, let me summarize the Old Testament in one minute. The whole thing. It really boils down to two promises. God is going to come and save his people. Amen? God is going to send a servant king, an instrument, by whom his rescue is going to come. And now I'm scratching my head. Which is it, God? Is it you or the shepherd king? Yes, because both of these promises intersect in the person of Jesus, the God king. Amen? Wow. It's both. <laughs> Let's talk a bit more about this common imagery. How is this coming king described in both Old Testament passages? He will be a? I got a, like a curved, okay, good. Yeah, shepherd. I, was just, I wanted somebody to say it. We see this shepherding imagery all throughout the Gospels in reference to who? Who refers to himself as the good shepherd? What does Jesus want us to know? I'm the guy. I'm the guy. It's me. Mark 6.34, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. And he had compassion on them. Why? Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. What's Jesus saying? I'll be your shepherd. I got you. I love John 10. Verse 11, Jesus says, I mean, come on, all subtleties aside, right? I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. This is going to upset some people, and some are going to say, well, we'll finish on time. I had a section getting more into the Hebrew of Micah 5. I don't have time for it. I scratched it all out. I love you. All right, let's keep going. It was cool, though. One day. Not only is Herod's response contrasted with the wise men, there's this sweet juxtaposition. It happens two times in our passage where we are meant to compare the wise men and Herod, right? They both respond differently to Jesus, this revelation. But we're also meant to contrast and compare Herod as king versus the true king who? Jesus Christ. Let's do that. Andreas Kostenberger writes, a shepherd king would behave very differently than the murderous and cruel Herod. 
There is no king like Jesus. Amen? There is no king like Jesus. No other king has died for his people, bearing the full weight, the guilt, and the shame of sinners, taking the wrath of God for his people. So the question is, is Jesus your king? Is he your king? Friends, we're more like Herod, by the way. And I'm going to make that argument here shortly. But we're more like Herod, more concerned with our kingdom, our agenda, than God's glory. Why else did Jesus come? Jesus came to be worshipped. That's verse 11. And we're going to unpack this more shortly. But again, what do the wise men do? They follow God's revelation. They come before Jesus and they, they piptoe, which is the Greek word for fall down. It's like when I, when I learned Greek, I would like come up with all these mind. So when I'm tiptoeing, sometimes I fall down, right? So piptoe, fall, never mind, never mind. It helped me, it didn't help you, obviously. But they, they fell down before him and they proskuneo, they worshipped him. Whoa, why did Jesus come? He came to be, he came to be worshipped. And he's worthy. Jesus was revealed. And not only that, but his reason for coming was revealed. He came to be worshipped. And this brings us to our next question, number three. How did people respond to this revelation? Notice the two responses in our passage. Number one, we have the wise men from the east. And number two, we have Herod and all Jerusalem with him. Let's start with Herod in Jerusalem. How did they respond to this revelation? Verse three, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. Why were Herod and all Jerusalem troubled? The Greek word here is terasso. Great mental and emotional distress. <laughs> they were struggling. They did not like this news. A new king? That's not good news for us. Why was Herod troubled? It's because Jesus presents a great threat to the status quo. Why are unbelievers, sinners, so troubled when we talk about Jesus? Because Jesus threatens our self-rule. It's true? Wait a minute, so I'm not king? No, you never were. I gotta go. You know what I mean? It's true. That's what happens. When we talk about Jesus and the fact that he is supreme, he is king, and you're not... And you need him. It threatens the status quo. It threatens our, our self-rule, this lie that we've bought into that we got this, we don't have this. You know, Herod liked being king, right? I mean, that's obvious. He liked being king. What does he do? He commits mass murder. He does not want his rule to be threatened. We're the same way. We like to rule our own lives. The people of Israel, specifically those in positions of power, and prestige liked the way things were. The announcement of a new king threatened them. It meant the sharing of power, or even worse, the end of power for some. The announcement of King Jesus threatens all, specifically the sinful heart of mankind that seeks to elevate self as supreme. What does Herod's response teach us about humanity? This is one of those theological questions we ask, we're made to ask when we come to God's word. It begs this question, what does this teach us about humanity? We are hard-hearted and naturally want to go our way and not God's way. Is true? 
we naturally rebel against God's revelation of Jesus Christ because we're threatened by it. We're threatened by it. Although the presence of the promised King Jesus of the Old Testament meant rescue and restoration, healing and justice, those in power were unwilling to step down. And then we have the wise men. Who were these guys? <laughs> Again, a lot's been written on these guys as well. Who were these cats? <clears throat> There's something really cool here. There is a rich Old Testament history that many of us may not be aware of, okay? But first, I want to identify the Magoi. Not the Magoos, but the Magoi. That's the plural for Magi, the Magoi in Greek. What does the text say? Verses 1 and 2, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the... Okay, so that's like a, a situation clue. They're from the east. A context clue. They're from the east. Came to Jerusalem saying... Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose. They came for a purpose. They came to worship him. Now, scholars agree that the language from the east indicates a homeland somewhere in Persia, Babylon, or Arabia. Justin Martyr, who wrote in the second century, he believed that these brothers were from Arabia. And also what we have, the, the three gifts mentioned, the gold and the frankincense and the myrrh, also suggest Arabia. They're from the east. Now, here's what I want us to think about. This is really cool. There is a parallel account in the Old Testament that looks ahead to this account. Is this the only biblical account where highly esteemed figures from a foreign land come to pay homage to a son of David? Say it in Spanish? No. Recall 1 Kings 10, 1 to 10 in the Queen of Sheba. She came to Solomon, right? Came to pay homage and offered gifts very much like this. This visit in 1 Kings 10 foreshadows the visit of the Magoi, the Magi, the wise men. She too came bearing gifts of gold, spices, and precious stones. What we're seeing in our passage today is that Jesus is the greater son of David. Come for the world. Amen? Recall Jesus' words recorded later on in Matthew 12, 41 and 42. He says, The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Verse 42, The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Who is the greater son of David? Jesus. This is further proclaimed in Isaiah 60. Namely, this expectation of foreign powers streaming to the Messiah, the true king, in worship and praise. Isaiah 60, verses 1 to 3 and verse 6. Arise, Shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations, everybody say nations. Nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. A multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah 
all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense. Whoa! And shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. What's the point of all this? The, the, this juxtaposition between the response of Herod in Jerusalem with the wise men from the east. One scholar writes, the message is unmistakable. Even if Israel won't worship her long-awaited Messiah, Gentiles will. Furthermore, this whole episode declares God's faithfulness to provide salvation for the nations, as attested by the response of the wise men. Back to the wise men. These wise men from the east were responding both to providential revelation in nature and Old Testament prophecy. They were obviously familiar with the Old Testament. And we, we learn that these men, they left their home to pursue the king. They rejoice, they humble themselves, they worship, they offer Jesus costly gifts, and they risk not only their reputations, but their very lives to see the king. These men understood the matchless worth of Jesus Christ. And that brings us to question number four. What might we take away from the proper response to this revelation? More specifically, what do we learn about worship from the wise men's response? I think this is going to be really helpful for us, okay? Our worship of King Jesus is to be joyful. Why? Because he's the Savior King of promise. Amen? The King has come. Our worship should be expressive and sincere. Our worship should be costly Risky, and lastly, evidenced by obedience. So I want to unpack each of these quickly. Number one, joyful. Our worship should be joyful. Verses 9 and 10, after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them till it came to rest over the place where the child was. Now listen, verse 10, this is it. When they saw the star... They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And maybe you're thinking, yeah, they're tired and they know their journey's over. Okay, come on, it's more than that, right? They've come to the king. Actually, the king had come to them. Why did the wise man rejoice with exceeding joy? Now, when the Bible says rejoice, that's significant. But when it says rejoice with exceeding joy, whoa. That's joy on a whole new level, okay? They had found the one that nature and scripture bore witness to. They had been drawn to the Savior King. Why should our worship be joyful? We've been saved by the King. Amen? We've been saved by the King. If we've trusted in Christ, then we know that we're forgiven, justified, and adopted into the family of God. We joyfully worship him. How should we worship the king? Joyfully. Next, expressive and sincere. Now, I know we have some Stoics here, right? You'll never see me smile. Come on, bro. All right? I'm not going to raise my hands above my, my waist. Verse 11. In going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they what? What was the Greek word? Rhymes with tiptoe, tiptoe. I'll unpack it. It's a really significant word. They fell down. They didn't trip. 
Okay, that'd be embarrassing. They fell down and they worshipped him. Then, they didn't just fall down and worship. It's just getting started. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. They fell down and worshipped. Matthew's use of these two verbs is highly significant and intentional. Again, the word to fall down means what? Well, what's the Greek word? Pipto, right? Pipto when you fall down. Pipto, it means to prostrate oneself before another. This verb is used when one person is in the presence of another who is supreme. Understand? What did they realize? Why did they fall down? Because this little baby is supreme to us. What? Next, we read that they worshipped proskuneo. It means to express by attitude and possibly by position one's allegiance to and regard for deity. Oh my goodness. This verb is used in the context of divine worship. Matthew wants us to see that this is not just a mere baby. This is the God-man, fully man and fully God, who alone is worthy of our lives and allegiance. Amen? Now, listen, this was no show. These guys weren't just going through motions, right? Well, there's just the proper way of doing this when you come before royalty. No, this was all in motion. This is what all looks like. You fall down, and you worship, and you bring your gifts, right? This was all in motion. This was appropriate. How are we expressing worship, sincere worship toward the king? Next, it was costly. The wise men left home. They offered expensive gifts at the feet of King Jesus. How have you counted the cost? Have you denied yourself? Now, many scholars, and I enjoy this. This is cool. Many scholars note the significance of the three gifts. What did they mean? What did they symbolize? One scholar writes, gold emphasized Jesus' royalty. Frankincense, his deity. It was used in various offerings to God. And myrrh, his humanity. Now, this is really cool. Myrrh was also used in embalming. What does that mean? Who do you embalm? Dead people. Right? So myrrh was used in embalming. And it's interesting that at the cross, Jesus is offered myrrh mixed with wine. This final gift provides us with a foreshadowing of Jesus' death, why he came. When we celebrate the birth of Jesus, we must remember why Jesus came. He came to die. We can't forget that at Christmas. Why did Jesus come? He came to give his life for sinners. And this is our ultimate grounds for worship. <clears throat> On this note of costly worship, I've told this story before. Uh, one of my students in Africa at Cameroon Baptist Theological Seminary, his name was Stephen. And Stephen counted the cost. He was raised Muslim. As a teenager, he heard the gospel. He went home and told his parents, I believe in Jesus. He is my king now. And his dad said, you are dead to me, and if you ever come back, I will kill you. Oh, thanks, Dad. He knew that would happen. 
counted the cost. Jesus was worth it. Amen? Jesus is worth it. Next, risky. Now think about this. How was their worship risky? More important than their... Important. <laughs> that's a new word. More important than their dignity and safety was responding appropriately to the true king. They counted the cost. They left their king, by the way. We forget about that. They're, they're coming from somewhere. So they're leaving their king. And what did we talk about? Pipto? What does it denote? Proskuneo? The giving of one's allegiance. So they're giving their allegiance to a new king. That is dangerous. They leave home. They leave family. They leave their king. They count the cost. They disobeyed Herod. What did Herod say? Hey, uh, when you find him, come and tell me so I can come and worship him too. What were Herod's intentions? To kill, to murder, to eradicate any threat to his kingdom. This was not diplomacy, right? They weren't concerned with their well-being. If they were, they would have obeyed Herod, right? I mean, they want to keep those relationships good. This is diplomacy. This was not diplomacy. From the world's perspective, this was lunacy. However, Jesus was worth it. Worshiping Jesus is not in vogue. It's not popular with culture. In fact, there's nothing more countercultural than what? Worshiping Jesus as king. There's nothing more contrary to our sin nature. Are you willing to risk it all to follow Jesus, to worship him with your whole life? Lastly here, and then I have just some application steps and practice questions. Worship is evidence through obedience. Evidence what? What evidence? What's the evidence? How did they show they were obedient? Verse 12. And being warned in a dream, who gave him the dream? Who spoke to him in the dream? God. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. You have one king telling them to come back, and then you have the true king saying, go another way. And what did they do after their encounter with Jesus? They went the way of God. Again, compare verse 9 with verse 12. Verse 9 reads, after listening to the king, they went on their way. Okay, Herod, you want us to go? We're going to go. We're, we're on this trip anyway, and we'll, we'll come back and, and let you know what we find. What's the difference? After their encounter with Christ, they chose to obey God rather than Herod. True worship is evidenced by our what? Our obedience. What makes Jesus worthy of our worship? He's God. Amen? He's the promised king. This is revealed early on in the Gospels and before that in the Old Testament. Jesus, the God King, has come. Let's worship him. Let me give you about five quick practice steps. I'm going to shoot quick here, okay? Number one, Christmas is an invitation to come and see the king. How have you responded to the king? Have you trusted in Jesus for salvation from sin and eternal death? And then church, how are we extending this invite to others? Again, what precedes worship? Revelation. What is our goal? To make more worshipers of King Jesus. So what must we do? Present people with God's revelation. Where is it found? In the Word. Get busy. <laughs> Number two, Christmas is a reminder of God's grace and mercy, His generosity. He has given us the ultimate gift of His Son. And this gift has been made available to the world. 
He came for the nations. How are we imitating his grace, mercy, and generosity in our own lives? Number three, Christmas is a reminder of the faithfulness of God. How are we consistently thanking God and expressing gratitude to God for his faithfulness to his saving promises? Number four, Christmas is a reminder of the matchless worth and beauty of Christ. How are we currently worshiping the king? Is it seen in our day-to-day lives? Christ has been revealed to us in the word of God. How have we responded? How should we continue to respond? And lastly, is our worship joyful? Is it expressive and sincere? Is it costly? Is it risky? And is it evidenced by our obedience? And how can we grow in these areas? How can we grow in these areas? You know, I've had the privilege of doing ministry in many parts of the world. I have. I I think I told you, there's one passage I've preached in like three different continents. I'm thankful for that. But what do I notice when I travel and preach? What have I seen? I have seen the nations worshiping God. I have seen God's saving plan come to fruition, right? I mean, God is worshiped all over the world, amen? Christ has been revealed all over the world. Think about this, and then I'm going to close in prayer. How does Matthew begin? It begins with the nations coming to Christ. How does Matthew end? It ends with the Great Commission, Jesus commanding and commissioning his disciples to go to the nations. Do you see how it's bookended? The emphasis on the nations. Listen, Revelation does two things, okay? It results in worship, and it results in mission. And if you're a Christian, you should be doing two things right now, worshiping the king and being involved in his mission of making him known to the world. Now, something unique about Christmas, (laughs) and I've shared this about Thanksgiving as well, you oftentimes see family you haven't seen for a long time. And maybe for some of you, that's on, that's on purpose. Yeah, we'll see them at Christmas time, right? Thank goodness we don't have to see them but once a year. But many of us are brought into close proximity over the holidays with family and friends that don't know Jesus. What should we do? What should we do? We should bring God's revelation before them. We should tell them the gospel. Again, Revelation gives birth to worship and mission. God's heart is mission, and he wants us to be involved in his mission of making him known for his glory and his renown. Amen? And as we just saw, we have so much to be thankful for, and we have every reason to worship him. Let's pray. Father, we are in awe together of your revelation in your word. God, your revelation is, your revealing of your son, Jesus. We learn that it's according to your grace. It's because of your love. It's for your glory. Again, it's undeserved, but you have made yourself known so that we can know you. And I pray for those in this room who know you, who can say, yes, Jesus is my Lord and King, that we would respond appropriately to that revelation by worshiping you with our whole lives, expressively, costly in a risky manner that our obedience would be our worship as well and that father we'd be committed to your mission of making disciples of your son jesus i pray that you would put in our hearts and minds this week family and friends neighbors classmates that don't know you that we can begin praying for 
and that we can begin going to with the gospel. Lord, use us as your people to make known the gospel of Jesus Christ. We want to see more worshipers because we want to see you glorified more. We love you, King Jesus, and we ask all these things in your name. And all God's people said, amen.